Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Breast cancer, nobody wants to hear that they have it, but statistically, one in every eight women will get it. How is it diagnosed and have we moved past the standard mammogram? Where do ultrasound and MRI come into play? And once you're diagnosed, how close are we with personalizing cancer treatment? And what's emerging in the field of cancer treatment for women diagnosed with breast cancer? We've got an exciting show for you today. We have Dr. Lara Peterson. She's a breast surgeon at the Kapilani Women's Center and Dr. Sharon Shirazi. And she also is at the Women's Center and recently started helping us to modernize some of our treatments and explain to me why things are different in the world of breast cancer diagnosis and treatment. We'll be taking your calls at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Dr. Shirazi, Dr. Peterson, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Thank you for Now, let's talk a little bit about, let's sort of framework this, diagnosis, and then we'll talk about treatment, and then we'll talk about future. So there have been some new recent developments in the world of diagnosis. A study came out, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, looking at 3D mammograms, or something called tomosynthesis, in a very positive light. There's the standard mammogram that women are told to do. Back about, was it 2009 or so, the Preventative Services Task Force came out, said maybe just do it every other year, but not a lot of people agreed with that. What is the current latest recommendation for mammograms? Current latest recommendation is to have annual mammograms beginning at age 40. Um, There was some controversy about the ages of 40 to 50, um, but really all the major groups, including the American Cancer Society, the American College of Radiology, the American College of Surgeons, and the American College of Gynecology, all recommend annual mammograms beginning age 40. Um, Now, that may be adjusted a little bit depending on your personal risk of developing breast cancer, which partially relates to your family history or other atypical pathology you may have had in the past with other biopsies. And if you've had those, then you may actually start mammogram screening earlier. And when do you end? That's a good question, too. Um, Right now, there's not definitive data on an exact age to stop. Um, So I think it's, at this point, a discussion to have with your primary care physician. Um, It's important to look at comorbidities as you age. If you have a lot of other medical problems, it may be that breast cancer really isn't the biggest threat to to your life, and maybe mammograms won't benefit you. So I think that's a personal decision. Look at longevity in your family. Um, and other factors. Dr. Shirazi, any thoughts on that? I mean, certainly I've got some folks who, you know, they may have kidney failure or heart failure or some other serious medical problem, and I don't want to add to their list of things they have to do. So if they're over the age of 85 or so, you know, there's not a whole lot of healthy people over 85. Those that are, congratulations, we're happy for you. But, you know, in some cases, medical concerns can actually outweigh the need to do mammograms because you've got a whole a whole host of other appointments you've got to keep. I I 100% agree with what Dr. Peterson said. And uh, the data set that all of our screening guidelines have been based on really looked at women between the ages of 40 and 69. The 2009 updated guidelines um, by the Preventive Health Task Force recommended no more screening after the age of 75 
But again, we do routinely see women that are quite healthy, and our rule of thumb has been that if they're healthy and we think their life expectancy is at least 10 more years, then we do recommend screening. The fortunate thing is that the types of cancers that develop generally in postmenopausal women are treatable with surgery and are not likely to be the cause of mortality in women over 65. So if you do get diagnosed later in life, it tends to be a tumor that's easier to treat, and it probably won't be what takes you from the planet. Exactly. And I think if we look at strict data sets in women that are over age 65, the largest cause of mortality is still cardiac disease. And health and fitness are extremely important, not only from a cardiac standpoint, but also for the treatment of breast cancer. All right. There's always that health, fitness, diet, and exercise that everything seems to get down to and make me feel guilty around dinner time on a Monday. Okay. Now, mammograms are one thing. The 3D mammogram that they're looking at, tomosynthesis is what they call it, has that replaced a standard mammogram? Um, It actually hasn't completely replaced a standard mammogram. The experience for the patient is really very much the same as the regular 2D mammogram. And and you can't necessarily tell that you've had a 3D mammogram just by patient experience. So um, the difference is in that multiple images are taken in each compression view to generate a 3D picture that the radiologist can then scroll through and see more easily, especially through dense breast tissue. So it's particularly potentially important in women with dense breast tissue. So now, I hate to admit it, I'm over 4-0. I'm actually 4-1. So I went to go do my mammogram, and there I am in the radiology center, and there's this little thing on the wall that says, do you want tomosynthesis? This could be more radiation exposure, but could decrease the chances of callbacks. And I thought, I don't know, maybe I'll do that next time. Let me just go standard. And of course, you get call back and you have to do repeat images. And I asked the technician, had I just done the 3D, would I had to have come back? Because it seems like the radiation exposure would have been the same had I done the 3D in the beginning or if I did a standard and had to come back for extra views. And she said, you know, you might not have had to come back if you had done the 3D to begin with. Based on the study that came out from JAMA that was, prayer, that was recently published, should we all just say yes to the 3D? If we have a history of dense breasts or if we are younger in age, should we just say yes to that or should we still maybe think about it? The data would suggest that we should say yes. I should say yes. Should have said yes. Will in the future. Okay. That's based on reduction in the number of callbacks and that if you get recommended for a biopsy, the chance of that biopsy being positive as opposed to negative is higher. So there's less what we call false positive. So less chance you're going to have to go through a biopsy that turns out to be negative and go through the extra pain and suffering. Um, In terms of the radiation, old film mammograms before everything shifted to digital was more radiation than they are with digital mammograms. And the 3D mammogram adds a little bit because there's extra pictures taken. But in the end, it's about the same amount of radiation as the old plain film mammograms before digitals came along. So it's not a dramatic increase. Now, I do want to mention a couple of things that were published in that paper. The significant findings included a 41% increase in the detection of invasive breast cancers. 
a 29% increase in detection of all breast cancers. And these are things that they call, quote, statistically significant, meaning it's not just by chance. This the, when they compared the standard mammography with the three-dimensional or to- tomosynthesis mammograms, they did find that this was true. They also found a 15% decrease in women called back for additional imaging. But you're right, it also mentioned that a 49% increase in what they call positive predictive value, meaning if you're called back to do something, chances are it's going to be something to be concerned about. And good that you found it. Okay, so those were some, but they didn't actually find, there is something called ductal carcinoma in situ, which is a non-invasive cancer. They didn't really see any difference in whether or not that was diagnosed more readily with the 3D than it was with the standard mammography. Now, insurance may or may not cover it. I suspect after the study comes out, they're going to have to take a close look at that and start covering for tomosynthesis because this particular type of mammogram has a greater success rate, really. And it sounds like that's where we have to move into the future. Yeah, I agree. I I think right now insurance covers the cost of a standard screening mammogram. And so there is additional cost at some centers that have tomosynthesis, not all. Um, And that is generally a fairly low amount. And it's just to cover the additional radiology time to do the reading. But the bulk of the mammogram cost is actually covered because it, it is a screening mammogram, which is covered by insurance. So check with your insurance carrier, but don't be scared. If you're young, even if you're not, look at the 3D seriously. All right. Does it make a difference if you're, I don't know if this would be more of a radiology question. Does it make a difference if you've done standard mammograms all along, then you decide to do a 3D mammogram? They can still easily compare them. I would imagine there's not really a difference in technique enough to change that. Well, they can they can easily compare them. Um, one of the strengths of 3D mammograms is in dense breasts, when you're flattening it into a 2D picture, it'll hide a distortion or a twist in the tissue that you can pick out on a 3D mammogram and you can diagnose a cancer that you might easily have missed on a 2D. And I think that's where it's Sure, a 49% increase when they were looking at detecting invasive breast cancers. Now, what about ultrasound? There's, There's certainly the possibility that ultrasound can be done. There's a new automated whole breast ultrasound available at Polymomy. Where does ultrasound fit into this mix? Dr. Shirazi? Well, I think the interesting thing about the tomosynthesis as an adjunctive study to mammogram is that it has actually shown an increase in the positive predictive value, meaning we're able to decrease the number of false positives, while the specificity is also improved. Whereas if you're looking with ultrasound and with MRI, for example, your sensitivity is extremely high, but a probability of increased false positives also exists. So they'll find a lot of stuff, but not all of it you have to worry about. Right, exactly. With the 3D, they'll find a lot of stuff, and if they find it, you probably have to be concerned about it. But ultrasound MRI, you'll find lots of stuff, things you didn't want to see, and then maybe go down the route of doing testing, biopsy, etc., probably wasn't necessary. Exactly. And there have been large trials that have looked at the addition of, for example, ultrasound. There was a large trial done by a, a an author named Wendy Berg. And in those women, there was a 40% increased need for biopsy, which ultimately did not result in a better uh, screening experience for women. Now, I think it's important when we're discussing uh, imaging that we differentiate screening, meaning asymptomatic women, with no findings in their breast from women who are 
experiencing a lump or have some concerns. And for our audience, I think it's extremely important that if they do find a mass or a lump, this data does not apply to you, meaning that the imaging modalities that we would use in someone who needs a diagnostic workup is completely different than when we're talking about screening. So screening, we kind of went over. Let's talk about that diagnostic workup because if somebody says, okay, I went for my screening mammogram, it was negative, and now I feel a big lump. Oh, I'll just wait because I did my screening mammogram. I did that 3D one. I don't have to do anything. But if you feel a lump or a mass, don't ignore it. Exactly. And how are the diagnostic tools that we use different than screening? So screening would be standard mammography. These days they're digital tomosynthesis or 3D if available, and then other testing if there's something of concern. But when we're talking diagnostic, for that woman who says, I felt a lump, what should I do? How do we use these modalities? Well, mammograms have long been established, and they're still the gold standard of how we screen patients. Their strengths are that the well-trained radiologist, which we're fortunate to have many of in our uh, Hawaii Pacific Health System, can recognize two things, predominantly uh, architectural distortions and microcalcifications. And these are the strengths of mammography. However, in a person with a mass, especially if they have dense breasts, the mammogram may be negative because if there is no architectural distortion or microcalcifications associated with this mass, then it may just look like breast tissue on the mammogram. The density won't change. In that case, we move to adjunctive imaging, something like ultrasound, which will actually help us to differentiate between a solid mass, for example, which is something that would then go on to need a biopsy, versus a cystic mass or just a fluid-filled structure that we can safely say, oh, you know, this is not something that you need to worry about. We can just drain the fluid, and it doesn't pose any additional risk for those women. So I think in a person with a mass or a clinical finding, The workup is extremely important. And you need to get on that pretty soon. You don't want to sit on that for months at a time. If you feel something, you get it checked out. Go see your gynecologist. Go see your internist. Don't don't just ignore it. Absolutely. And and I don't think the element of fear needs to be um, associated with findings because many times these are just changes that are pretty common for women, and we can help differentiate between things that are not necessarily needing additional um, therapy versus things that would. Well, and I think learning what normal feels for you is extremely important. And so for any woman who hasn't done, you know, there are studies that occasionally say breast exams aren't helpful. And then I'll talk with, with individuals and they'll say, yeah, I had a negative mammogram and I felt that lump myself. And I was the one who brought it to the attention of my doctors and that's what happened. I, you know, it's, there's, there's a no risk there, really. There's no harm. And so to me, I really do think a breast exam is extremely important. Make sure that you get familiar with the changes in your breast tissue over the course of a menstrual cycle or otherwise. And make sure that you know what something is if it's abnormal for you, because it may be very subtle and you may be the only one to feel it. Absolutely. And I think what you said is is the most important thing is just get familiar. Get familiar with your own breasts. It doesn't mean you have to every month on the dot, any specific day, examine your breasts um, routinely, religiously, but get familiar with the feel of your breast tissue throughout your cycle and you'll be more likely to notice if there's any differences or changes. Now, 
we've talked about the diagnostic options. We've talked about the screening options. Uh, MRI, is that only done for high-risk women? I mean, you mentioned earlier that that could potentially show a lot of stuff that you might not have to worry about. But certain women in the high-risk breast clinic, I know there's one at Kapiolani, and I'm sure there's one at Queens, they do other testing that we wouldn't necessarily recommend as screening for other women. Is that where MRI comes into play? Well, when we're talking about screening using MRI, the women that it's shown the most benefit in is are women with a genetic or germline mutation. Those are what we call the BRCA1 or BRCA2 um, mutation patients. Um, and in those patients, we recommend beginning at age 30 or 10 years prior to the uh, first degree relatives diagnosis. And in those women, there is an excellent benefit from screening. And we recommend that in addition to mammography. And that's been a practice that's been in place since 2001. Additionally, the American Cancer Society has recommended that if you have um, a greater than 25% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer, then we would additionally screen you as well with annual mammography as well as MRI. The women who we haven't been able to make clear recommendations for are women with sort of intermediate lesions. Those are things that would maybe place them at a slightly higher risk, things like atypical biopsies or um, other things that we don't know specifically where the addition of MRI with its resultant increased possibility of false positives and need for additional biopsies. So we're not able to for sure recommend MRIs as a screening tool in those women. So the women who have the genetic risk, the women who are at a greater than 25% chance, what puts them at that greater than 25% chance? Most of the time, it's family history, particularly in first-degree relatives. Um, There's also a a minor contribution from things like early menarche, late and number of biopsies or atypical biopsies, particularly in combination with family history, that generally puts somebody above 25% lifetime risk. Um, other, other women who should be screened with MRI are women who've had radiation before, mantle radiation for Hodgkin's disease treatment, um, or other, other, I think that's, that primarily covers um, the group that should be screened with MRI. So not everybody should be, but really MRI is focused on genetic predisposition that puts you at high risk or other factors that put you at a significant high risk. That's the population where MRI is helpful. It wouldn't be something everybody would do. We'd find all this stuff, and then we'd probably do all these things, biopsies and surgeries, and find out it was all for naught because everything was normal. And, you know, as exciting as it is to go in and have a biopsy and be told everything's okay, you know, you don't want to have to do that all the time. I've got plenty of folks that don't want to come in because they're like, yeah, I've done that whole biopsy route before. I don't want to go there again because everything was always negative. doesn't necessarily mean it will be in the future. That's right. Absolutely. And I think we've actually studied this pretty well now because at the beginning of the this century, we started using MRI quite consistently. Um, and I happen to be in a part of the country with a high prevalence of BRCA mutations. And we were using MRIs on everyone Um, for screening purposes, and also in all of the women who were undergoing breast conservation with the idea that if we found an abnormality in a different part of the breast, that maybe these women would no longer be candidates for breast conserving surgery. Subsequent to that, we've noticed a a rebound in the number of mastectomies that we've done and an increase that 
is unprecedented and we're not only doing um, completion mastectomies in women who could be candidates for breast conservation, but we sometimes end up doing contralateral mastectomies in women because they don't want to go through this whole biopsy route. They say, well, you know, if there's an abnormality on the MRI, can't we just do a prophylactic mastectomy and then I can just be done with it? And unfortunately, I don't think that really is serving the patient in the best interests because the quality of life data actually suggests that women who have breast-conserving surgery are actually quite satisfied with their long-term results. And more importantly, the risk of recurrence in those women is actually coming down as we better understand the biology and personalized treatment of those particular cancers. Well, we are going to get into the biology, one of my favorite subjects, in just a minute. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Laura Peterson and Dr. Sharon Shirazi, and we are talking about breast cancer and whether or not the latest treatments take into account all different variations, ethnic variations, genetic issues, metabolism issues, all of those things all together. When we come back, we're going to talk more about cell and biology and talk about genetics and how that relates to the latest in the treatment for breast cancer. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. After months of investigation, the Senate panel into the state hospital continues with another hearing this month. Next on The Conversation, we'll get an update on the panel's activities and what it has discovered. Senator Josh Green gives us an update tomorrow morning at 8 for The Conversation. On the next Humankind. It was just scandalous about how you could literally be killed for registering to vote. A history of the often contested American right to vote, from women's suffrage to civil rights to today's debate over voter IDs. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for The Right to Vote, a special from Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Laura Peterson, Dr. Sharon Shirazi. They're both breast surgeons at the Kapiolani Women's Center, part of the Hawaii Pacific Health System. And today we're talking about breast cancer, the latest in diagnostic tools. And now we're going to talk a little bit about cell and molecular biology, because there's a lot that's gone on as far as research is concerned in the different ethnic variations on how to approach treatment. Again, one size does not fit all these days. If you've had breast cancer, if you had a question about concerns regarding what to do about your particular situation, or maybe just wonder if you're in that high-risk group, you can join us at 941-3689. Total Free Neighbor Islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Shirazi, you had a unique background. While you were doing your residency, you were also doing basic science research, and you're currently working on your PhD as well. Tell me a little bit about how cell and molecular biology changes our current approach to tumors. Why does it matter? Well, it's an excellent question, um, and we really just need to look at our our community around us to see the differences in the types of people that we live with. Every person has a different genetic makeup, 
And in the same way, the personality or subtype of their cancer will be completely different based on their own inherited set of genes and their lifestyle exposures. So when we're talking about inherited, uh, some people don't realize that when we talk about a tumor, it's it's your own body's cell exactly that has done something different. So all the genetics that you re- that you receive from your parents, from your grandparents, etc., those genes are in that cell. Exactly. In addition to something else weird that happened to it, and now it's become a cancerous cell. Cancer cells multiply, they take over, they do bad things, but there's there's still part of your genetics in that cell. So that's why family history and ethnic variation make a difference. Exactly. And I think in the past, we've really thought of cancer as one disease. And that is something that I hear still in the lay press that people say, oh, you know, this person died of cancer. The reality is, is that even within breast cancer, the types of cancer that we see and their prognosis is extremely different depending on the prognostic factors or what I like to call when I'm speaking to patients, the personality types are these slow-growing favorable types of cancers, which we can largely treat and control over time, and they become like a chronic disease, or are they more aggressive um, subtypes of cancer, which need to be really treated with aggressive chemotherapy and combinations of um, radiation and surgery for control. And that's really the key, is that um, we all are comprised of different genetic makeup, and the path that the tumor may take on its way to becoming a cancer is quite different. And depending on the changes that it can acquire, the the response to treatment will be different. Uh, other things such as lifestyle factors are extremely important. Alcohol intake, diet and exercise, fat intake, things like responsiveness to chemotherapy, which depend not only on your baseline fitness and your ability to tolerate, for example, Herceptin if you have heart disease. Um, we know that women who have to take Herceptin may not tolerate it that well, and they may have some um, heart disease-related dysfunction. Um, But at the same time, we also know that some patients don't metabolize the chemotherapeutics or the tamoxifen, for example, into its active metabolites. So for these women, we can spare them chemotherapy if their tumor doesn't benefit from the addition of these medications. So there are some things we can do to the tumor to figure out a little bit more about this. And a lot of people hear about receptor status. That fits into some of the genetics. What does that exactly mean? So the estrogen receptor is one of the key drivers of what we call cancer tumor biology. Um, The estrogen receptor pathway, it influences growth and change in the breast. And when we talk about the major pathways in breast cancer, estrogen receptor pathway has a strong influence. The progesterone receptor is also important, and it's the second prognostic factor that we look at. And the third prognostic factor that we look at is a gene called the HER2 pathway, and it's in the human epidermal growth factor family, and it's um, also causing increase in the growth of cells. So when we look at the personality subtypes and we try to make prognostic um, decisions, we look at whether these three um, markers are involved. Estrogen receptor cancers tend to do much more favorably over time. Um, Triple negative cancers can be um, less favorable, 
but definitely we take the time to distinguish and treat differently uh, based on those prognostic factors. All right, I want to talk some more about that in just a sec. We've got Todd on the line from Honolulu. Todd, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, um, thank you for taking the call. I'm just fascinated by this, and I wonder if they can just retouch on, I recall about six months ago or a year ago, a, a story coming out, Angelina Jolie was predisposed to a certain type of breast cancer and actually had her, uh, like, a radical mastectomy done. And I was just wondering, I can't remember, was that for was that medically acceptable for what she had done, or was it more of just a political statement, or um, if they could talk about that for a little bit? It's a great question, Todd, and I think part of what you're... would normally be done to a patient, or is there another treatment option, or was it preventative managers? Is that what a doctor would normally recommend? Yeah, I mean... And I'll listen to the answer off the air. Sure. You know, Todd, it's a great question, because you wonder, would you go to, you know, is surgery ever indicated in someone who does not have a problem? Should you do a preventative surgery. And there there was certainly a lot of question uh, when she first admitted that she had done that, Angelina Jolie in particular, and she's certainly not the only one. Uh, but then when we talk about those risk factors for developing cancer, that particular gene set is in the list. Dr. Peterson, have you ever done prophylactic mastectomy for patients who have an extremely high risk of cancer, whether it be genetically or otherwise? Absolutely. Um, For women in particular who have a mutation in one of these two specific genes, that's BRCA1 or 2, which Angelina Jolie did have a diagnosed genetic mutation that made her 70 to 80 percent lifetime risk of getting breast cancer. So certainly much higher chance that she would than that she wouldn't. For those women, preventive surgery is absolutely an option and it is a very reasonable option because although we can't reduce their risk to zero, we can reduce it by 95%. And for someone looking at an 80% lifetime risk, reducing that by 95% is very significant. It takes a lot of worry and concern out of their life. Hopefully, they'll never have to be treated for breast cancer with chemotherapy, et cetera. And they've done a, a, a good job preventing an illness. And, you know, we use vaccines to try and prevent illness. And occasionally, surgery is, is useful to prevent um, getting a disease. Well, when we look at the average percentage, what is it, about 12% chance over a lifetime of a woman getting cancer, and then somebody gets told you have an 80% chance. I mean, that's a significant increase. And so certainly that's a reason to do something that maybe 20 years ago we might not have considered, but these days it certainly wasn't a political statement. It sounds like it was a health statement. It was like, definitely you know. a health statement, and she made a wise decision. This was not a stunt. This is something that I see women all the time who face this exact same decision. Um, I do think it's become more acceptable to women to consider preventive surgery with modern breast reconstruction. The plastic surgery techniques are now excellent. You can get excellent cosmetic results, and that makes it a lot more acceptable to women. And it's not the end just to do the breast surgery. In a lot of women, ovarian surgery is also indicated because that same genetic set is a significant increased risk for ovarian cancer. I think, I'm thinking 50% lifetime risk of ovarian cancer with positive BRCA1 or 2. Yeah, it's about 30 to 50%. 30 to 50%. And so prophylactic surgery for the ovaries as well um, is definitely indicated. 
Well, and that gets back to, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Todd, because that was a great question. That gets back to some of the genetics, and we're talking about receptor status. So after you get diagnosed, there are some things that are done in the lab to test your tumor. And Dr. Shirazi, you mentioned if you have an estrogen receptor positive tumor, then generally it may be something that responds to certain treatment, but there are some variations in who responds better to that treatment and who doesn't. A lot of people hear about tamoxifen, they hear about Arimidex, they hear about Femara. What are the difference between these and how do we use them clinically? Well, tamoxifen is what we call a selective estrogen receptor modulator. So the estrogen receptor is not just like an on-off switch that you just turn off the switch with tamoxifen and that it works. I think a lot of people tend to think of it that way. But tamoxifen's effect are to um, use a series of other co-regulators to help open up the DNA so that the growth of these tumors is, is stopped. And I would say approximately maybe 70% of patients are actually responsive to tamoxifen in the first-line treatment. And we do have patients that are resistant. And in women that are resistant, unfortunately, some of the ways that we know they're resistant is that their tumor recurs within a short period of time. Then they can go on to have um, second-line treatment in the form of aromatase inhibitors if they're premenopausal or something called fluvastrant, which is a, a shot, which is also an irreversible receptor inhibitor. Um, and as these tumors progress, we have other um, therapies, a pathway called the mTOR pathway, which is also important, but it's, again, it's an alternate secondary uh, pathway. We now are developing, for example, medications called Affinitor, which inhibit these alternate pathways that tend to become upregulated. A good way to think about it is if the estrogen pathway were the H1 freeway and you're... Oh, that's never blocked <laughs> ever, right? <laughs> right. And, and it, there's a lot of traffic. And for example, patients that have been seeing a lot of tamoxifen, it's, it's exact... Um, it's like getting analogy. Off, sure, getting be, off and taking a side street. Exactly. And that's how I explain it to patients is that the tumor grows under the influence of estrogen. But after being suppressed for a while, the tumor will find alternate ways and produce um, what we call cytokines or chemicals that will promote the growth of the tumor using alternate pathways. And so we've been fortunate to be able to work with people at the in the basic sciences that have been very active in this area, and we hope to really um, improve the efficacy of these drugs that can help block the estrogen receptor pathway. Now, we've talked a little bit before we started on the show, and you mentioned if you're receptor negative, estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, HER2 genetic mutation negative, all is not lost. Although you may not be a candidate for some of the medications like tamoxifen, there are some other things that can still be done and, in fact, are kind of favorable in that situation. What would those be? Right. Well, the the breast cancers, which are ER negative, PR negative, and HER2 non-amplified, we've kind of given them a special name. We call them the triple negative breast cancers, and they really comprise a very specific a subtype or subclass of breast cancer, and we tend to think of those as having been more aggressive in the past because they're not amenable to any biologic or targeted therapy. The nice thing about estrogen receptor positive is that we have a pathway to target, and it doesn't affect as much the other um, parts of the patient. 
With triple negative breast cancers, however, we know that these women don't have specific targets that we can aim for in stopping their tumor growth. We intend, we instead have to use things that are more cytotoxic chemotherapy, and they will target basically all dividing cells, which is why the side effects that we see that are associated with chemotherapy are so debilitating for women. The cytotoxic chemotherapies basically are designed to target rapidly dividing cells, which include your hair, your blood cells, some of the lining of your gastrointestinal tract. So women, of course, derive the benefit of of having uh, suppression of their rapidly dividing tumors, but they also have the additional side effects of, you know, losing their hair and having diarrhea and stomatitis, which is inflammation of the mouth. So these are not ideal treatments, but the good news is that when we look at women who have responded to treatment and we try to give the treatment to them up front now, meaning before surgery, and it's become quite um, standard for triple negative women to be seeing chemotherapy before we send them to surgery, with the idea that women who have a complete response, meaning the tumor shrinks completely away, those women are actually going to do well in the long term. The women who don't respond, on the other hand, we can look for other therapies. Um, So once we've done the surgery and found that those women's tumors haven't responded to chemotherapy, we know that those women are then chemo-resistant, and then we would search for additional maybe clinical trials or alternate types of therapy like a vaccine with the um, uh, HER2-driven therapeutics like trastuzumab to help uh, diminish the risk of recurrence for those women. So really, if you have receptor-positive cancer, there are medications that can help to address that particular receptor pathway. If you have receptor-negative cancer, you may have to go through a more significant chemotherapy routine in the beginning, but long-term, you're going to have a decreased risk of recurrence if your tumor actually responds to the chemotherapy. Absolutely. And yet, if you still don't respond to that, we're now looking at that particular group of women to figure out what else do we do. So we've tried receptor status. We've tried chemotherapy. There must be something else that this particular individual may respond to. It sounds like we're really getting very personalized with our treatment, much more than we were even 10, 15 years ago. Absolutely. And I think that's that's key. Um, the other subtype that we haven't really talked about yet is the HER2 subtype. And again, HER2 was a uh, gene that was described to be amplified in 1987. The publication resulted in a fury of people trying to figure out why women with this additional portion of DNA were having more progressive disease and more biologically aggressive disease. And that led to research, uh, which allowed us to develop an antibody to the HER2 protein. And that's now used, um, again, in an upfront fashion. And we give the drugs to target HER2, trastuzumab, in the preoperative setting, again, to get an idea of how well these tumors respond. Unfortunately, we're finding that they're quite responsive when they're given up front. And that's kind of where the change has really come in in the way that we treat patients today, is that depending on the subtype or the personality type of the cancer, we determine whether they will get surgery first versus going to get aggressive chemotherapy to help shrink down the tumor. And I think it's extremely important to work closely with our not only oncology colleagues, um, but our radiation oncology colleagues and our radiology colleagues to to really determine how best to follow these patients in in terms of their tumor responsiveness and also for long-term treatment planning. So it's really become a team effort. It's not just 
just the doctor and the surgeon. It's now bring in the oncologist, bring in the radiation oncologist, bring in everybody to the table to really come up with the most appropriate personalized treatment that we can. It certainly sounds like we have a ways to go, but still have made some significant progress even within the last few years. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Laura Peterson, Dr. Sharon Shirazi. We are talking about breast cancer. If you have a question or if you've heard something and kind of wonder if what you're hearing is correct, we might be able to help you out. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. One of the latest changes to New York City includes a new option for getting you around town. People are very surprised at how bike-friendly New York has become. Enjoy New York like a local. Wander through the antebellum streets of Savannah, Georgia, and discover the mystique that still lingers in Key West. Well, you know, the thing about paradise is that it can be dangerous. Explore legendary American cities on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m., following Fresh Air. Deborah Brennigan's novel, Shame the Devil, tells the true story of Fanny Fern, a popular 19th century journalist who overcame poverty and abuse to write on her own. She believes in her heart that she shouldn't have to be mistreated or abused or subordinate to anybody. Deborah Brennigan tells Fanny Fern's story in her novel, Shame the Devil, on New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show on HPR2. Here in the studio, Dr. Laura Peterson, Dr. Sharon Shirazi, we're talking about breast cancer and what's the latest. There's some great stuff going on at the Kapiolani Women's Center, part of Hawaii Pacific Health, and we are going to tell you more about it. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. 3689. Now, right before the break, we were talking about how it's become a team approach. It's collaborative. And there's another thing you mentioned, Dr. Peterson, that people may not be aware of, where a group of doctors get together and they, we talk about you. Good things, of course, but we specifically talk about something related to, in this case, it would be a cancer. And there's something called tumor board. Tell me a little bit about that and what happens in that particular venue and why this is a good thing for people who come to see their doctor. So the treatment of breast cancer really is a team effort. The treatments span multiple specialties from diagnostics to treatment across multiple specialties. And it's really important as we get more personalized to look at each person and their tumor in combination together to make the best treatment plan for them individually. And part of this process is we have meetings at Capulani there every two weeks, but at some centers they're every week or every three or four weeks. But getting together on a regular basis with the radiologist, the surgeon, the pathologist, the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, the geneticist, various staff members, all to come together and hear a presentation about an individual's cancer and to, as a group, decide what the best course of action is, whether radiation is appropriate in a certain patient, whether they ought to have chemotherapy first or surgery first, um, the extenuating factors, the genetic factors, et cetera, that might affect their treatment plan, and to then come up with recommendations for that patient that cross multiple specialties and help us to treat someone 
surgically knowing the broader context. And so for each specialty, that helps us work as a team. Well, and it certainly sounds like it's the kind of situation where you want people to be talking about you. Absolutely. You want to have this team of people who are going to help you. Now, this also, in addition to having a tumor board, there's something unique about how things are set up where you're both working, and that has to do with proximity and and getting everything together in one place. Dr. Shirazi, if somebody's from the neighbor islands, how can they take advantage of this? Well, I think one of the key strengths of our program is that we're working in the same uh, office as our radiology colleagues, and we can help get patients that are coming here from the neighbor islands into imaging that's needed on the same day. Also, if they've been called for follow-ups, we can try to schedule that on the same day because they are coming from another island, and we want to make sure that we maximize the efficiency of their treatment process. Speaking of outer islands, we have a caller. We have Vincent from Wailuku. Vincent, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha, and thank you so much for talking about this, folks. I I have a question around, you know, in all the in all of the um, um, information out there about cancer, I, I know personally I've uh, put on conferences uh, here on, on Maui on the relationship between the body and the soil and, and learned a lot about uh, uh, along the way different people and their experiences and then professionals and, and that, that speak to all this. And one of the, the, the key factors that I don't ever hear about and in, in about cancer is people talking about nutrition. And, and what people are eating. And, uh, and then the, the idea of breast cancer, in my understanding, that iodine is concentrated in the mammary glands and the thyroid, and how a lack of iodine in the body is, is creating issues with people, especially now with all this incidence of, of breast cancer. And I would appreciate if you could speak a little bit to that, um, because I'm, you don't hear this on, in the media. You don't hear about you know, that people can actually, you know, mitigate some of these circumstances if, they, if their concentrations of iodine are, are at a higher level. Well, it's an interesting, uh, an interesting point you make, Vincent, is that what are we eating? And should we put down that burger and fries? And more importantly, a lot of people know about nutrition in respect to heart disease and diabetes and cholesterol and blood pressure. We're not looking at it in terms of cancer as much as we have with other disease processes. Uh, you know, we talked earlier, Dr. Shirazi, I said, hey, do I have to put away my tofu? I love tofu. Am I increasing my risk for cancer? Now, I know that iodine is concentrated in the thyroid. I'm not familiar if, if it's in breast tissue. I'm not aware that it is. But there are some other nutritional aspects that women should really look at. And by the way, do I have to put away my tofu? I like it. That's an excellent question. And, and actually, um, breast cancer is highly influenced by our dietary and lifestyle factors. And as far as nutritional status, I think everything in moderation is a reasonable thing. However, we do think that um, soy acts as a phytoestrogen, as you had mentioned, that it kind of increases the breast density. Um, so women who are eating excessive amounts of soy may want to take a step back and sort of ver change it up a little bit. Um, we do think that there's a correlation between body mass index and uh, breast cancer risk and survival, actually, in premenopausal and estrogen receptor-based cancers. 
So increasingly, the data at the large meetings, for example, recently at ASCO in Chicago, there's a special section dedicated specifically to nutrition and cancer. And we know that in even patients over 65, that if we increase their uh, dietary um, practices such that they're intaking seven servings of fruits and vegetables a day, that we actually do impact their risk of recurrence and their um, ability to tolerate secondary malignancies if they occur. We also know that exercise um, increases the amounts of, say, insulin um, fighting or growth hormone, which will help diminish the risk of these cancers recurring. So basically, eat better. Absolutely. Exercise more. And drink less alcohol, actually. Drink less. Don't smoke. All the same things your doctor already told you. And your mom told you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's true. That's very true. So be careful with what you're eating. You never know. They always say you are what you eat, and I, I'm really scared about that statement, so I won't go any further with that one, but I might be a Snickers bar for uh, for lunch today. I'm not admitting it. Um, but certainly, a lot of what we think, the basics of nutrition and exercise and those sorts of things, they do make a difference. And although it might not be the thing that you hear about on the news, I mean, how newsworthy is it to say, eat better, you're eating too much saturated fat? I mean, that's not as exciting as, as something else. I think the basics we often overlook because we're not putting enough effort into that area. And, you know, you're right, Vincent, you know, people could eat better and then maybe they could see some improvement in how they do. And Dr. Shiraz, you mentioned if you eat better, this is going to help you to avoid some of those secondary complications or other tumors. So so get your health together overall, and this could actually help you. And they've done studies to prove it. Absolutely. So the information is out there, Vincent. It's just kind of a little harder to find. We have got another caller on the line. We have Gay from Pahala. Gay, welcome to The Body Show. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for calling. What can we do for you today? I'm a breast cancer survivor. Good work. Yes. I'm glad that you're a survivor. And um, I got diagnosed through the breast cervical cancer uh, control program, which helped screen diagnose me and then had monies for my treatment. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Herceptin. That was one of the, the drugs that I took as part of my treatment instead of tamoxifen. Okay. Absolutely. I think that's a good thing to discuss. We were just talking about individualized receptor status and what does that mean for folks and why would somebody use the medication known as Herceptin. Dr. Shirazi, Dr. Peterson, thoughts on Herceptin? I'm going to let Dr. Shirazi talk about Herceptin, but I just wanted to make a quick point in that she mentioned that she was diagnosed through what we call the BCCC program, which is a program for women who don't have insurance and don't have money to pay for a mammogram or a screening those mammogram screenings, breast exams, and pap smears are available to women who can't afford them. So there is more information available, and that's a great program, Dr. Shrazi. Where do they get information about Um, it real quick? Well, there's a lot of places. One of them is Capulani. So Capulani Women's Center Mainline can get you information about our BCCC program. And there are various programs throughout the state that provide the service. So there's no excuse now. Right. You can't say, my insurance, I didn't have it. I didn't get my mammogram. I didn't get my pap smear. Um, nope, there's that BCCC program. Call Kapiolani. And there are places around the state, particularly in our neighbor islands as well, that can help to increase the screening rates. So thank you for letting us know about that, Gay. I appreciate you bringing that to our attention. Now let's talk Herceptin, Dr. Shirazi. 
Well, How so- did we discover it, first of all? How, I mean, the story on this is actually pretty cool. There was a whole movie made about it. Absolutely. And I remember watching it and thinking, this is such a great film. But Well, you know, I, I actually happened to work with closely and know the person. And it's the first time I've ever seen a movie made about a person I knew. And I didn't think Harry Connick Jr. was too similar to Dennis Lehman. Really? But- <laughs> I mean, but he just he played the role so well. So um, the Herceptin development story, as you said, is a very interesting one, but it all started with biomaterials. And I want to make sure that we include the importance of the pathologists in our treatment planning um, in the multidisciplinary tumor boards. So the pathologists that worked with Dennis Lehman noticed that there was an increased um, piece of DNA on something called a a, a blot, a northern blot or southern blots. They were increased pieces of DNA and they found that all of the women that had this increased piece of DNA um, had much more advanced disease, meaning their tumors were likely to be small in the breast, yet they were found to have lymph nodes um, that were involved with the disease. And they were also found to have a greater um, risk of having the tumor come back. And originally, we had an idea that these patients were much more responsive to certain types of chemotherapy, such as a group called anthracyclines. Um, And that's based on the fact that the gene is next to another gene that responds well to anthracycline-based chemotherapy. However, Dennis Lehman worked closely with a uh, group um, that helped develop an antibody, which blocks the effects of the HER2 pathway on the growth of these uh, tumor cells. So in the case of our caller, the breast cancer was actually uh, driven predominantly by the influence of, of the HER2 pathway. Herceptin is an antibody that blocks the pathway, and um, in that way, it stops the growth of the cancer. Now, HER2 resistance can also be a problem, or or Herceptin resistance. So in that case, we have additional therapies such as lapatinib, which are now also being understood. They function in a slightly different way to block the receptor. But those um, cancers, if we are successful in blocking them and the receptor, Um, they do actually extremely well. And we've seen in the registration trials for Herceptin a dramatic um, reduction in the disease burden in the metastatic trials. But in the adjuvant chemotherapy trials, we found maybe a 50% reduction in the um, risk of recurrence and the risk of disease progression. So we're really using Herceptin as a biologic targeted therapy to help diminish the risk of that tumor coming back or progressing. And so if you're the right candidate for it, if you have that particular HER2 mutation, then you will generally respond well to Herceptin, and this could be a life-saving treatment for you. Absolutely. So the testing of your tumor for that gene amplification is extremely important. And early on, actually, the reason that the drug wasn't registered until 2000, even though the discovery was made in 1987, is because we hadn't really perfected how to test the tumor. That's why it's extremely important that you have your tumor um, evaluated by a qualified pathologist that knows how to evaluate these tumors appropriately. And I think the importance of this cannot be uh, underappreciated. We really have to test the tumor in a satisfactory way so that we can figure out what the best treatments for these tumors are. Now, what's up and coming? What's going to happen five years from now, if I look at what we used to do five or 10 years ago, and now I look at how far we've come, what's next? 
Well, I think one of the things we're already doing and shifting more and more towards is um, something we talked about a little bit already, which is it used to be everyone got surgery first for breast cancer. And that's really changing a lot. Um, more and more we're finding that, for especially for aggressive types of cancers, the triple negatives or the HER2 positives, doing chemotherapy first not only gives us a better chance to save the breast and do breast conserving surgery potentially, but also to see how that particular tumor responds and give the patient information about how well their tumor did and know whether that chemotherapy was effective and then go on to surgery from there. And I think that's only gonna expand in the future where more and more we'll be taking that little sample that's taken at the time of biopsy and we'll be taking that tissue and looking at its response to different treatments and eventually we'll be able more and more to tailor specific chemotherapies to specific tumors and we'll know more in advance, is it worth the toxicity to the patient because it's effective for the cancer? Dr. Shirazi? Absolutely. And, you know, we've heard about some of these therapies. I think the 23andMe gene expression um, site that was put up by the Google founder's wife, that was an important example of how we can use a person's DNA to understand what kind of cancers they may be predisposed to. Or in the same vein, we can take, uh, I think in the future, we'll take core biopsies or minimally invasive biopsies of a tumor. We'll analyze it to see what the key driving features of these cancers are, in which um, case we'll be able to understand the sequence of therapies and the most relevant therapies that will then minimize side effects or toxicities for the patient while maximizing the biologic benefit for those patients. And in some women, for example, if their tumor is totally shrinking away, we can maybe avoid surgery if they've had a complete response. And for example, the MRI, if we do it in follow-up, or there's a, um, a type of imaging that looks at um, PET, it's a PET scan imaging modality. It's quite expensive now, but we know that this will determine whether the tumor is still biologically active. And if it's completely inactive, we may be able to follow these women. And so we really may change in the next couple of years, like we've seen from the last few years, the entire direction of how we approach women diagnosed with breast cancer. Absolutely. I mean, even in the time that I've been in surgery, we've moved from doing radical mastectomies with axillary clearance to really doing much more minimally invasive surgery. We also use a technique that, again, we've been trained in since the early part of 2000 called oncoplastic techniques, where we can actually do um, breast conserving surgery in such a way that the scars are really minimized and the breast mound itself is quite well preserved so that women still have that positive body image. Um, we're also doing sentinel lymph node biopsy, which has become the gold standard and is really able to predict um, how well that people are going to do um, without necessitating removal of all the lymph nodes. It's a prognostic factor and feature that we're um, using now daily, and that wasn't a routine part of practice 10, 15 years ago. Well, there's a lot of great information that both of you have provided today. I want to say thanks to both of you, Dr. Lara Peterson, Dr. Sharon Shirazi, for joining us today on The Body Show. I can't wait to hear about where we're headed in the next couple of years, and I hope you guys are more than happy to come back and give us an update. So thanks for joining us. Dr. Lara Peterson and Dr. Sharon Shirazi are both breast surgeons practicing at Kapiolani Women's Center, part of the Hawaii Pacific Health System. 
If you'd like to hear the show again, you can hear our podcast. Go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I'll see you next week right here on The Body Show.